Hey everybody, welcome to the podcast. Welcome back. I am very excited this week to introduce you to our guest podcast presenter, Michael Shepard. Michael and I met a few years back through regional events of the Disciples of Christ out at Fullerton, and we've crossed paths a couple of times since then, and it's always a delight to run into him. Uh, Just meeting him puts a smile on your face. He is such a nice guy, so I'm so pleased to introduce uh, you to him and to have him share with us this week. Michael is an adjunct professor of intercultural studies and political science at Hope International University and a teaching elder at First Christian Church in Fullerton. Uh, Before his current role as a stay-at-home dad, he worked in nonprofit leadership and community organizing for housing solutions in Orange County. Without further ado, Michael Shepard. Back when I was in high school, I started reading books about apologetics. And when my dad found out, he had us read Marcus Borg's Meeting Jesus Again for the First Time as part of our Sunday school lessons instead. If you haven't read that, he makes this distinction between the Jesus of history and the Christ of faith. After that, we read Cost of Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer and learned about the costly grace that we aspire to live out in obedience to Jesus' teaching. And then we read The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning that is page after page about how God's love for us is all-encompassing and that Jesus shows us what it is like to live in that reality and invites us to fully accept that we are loved instead of trying to earn our worth. What was really helpful from all of that homework was seeing how different perspectives can work together without having to figure out the single right way. Rather, A healthy faith is one that can respond to change and grow over time. The way we understand Jesus at one point in our life may not be what we need to continue growing in faith, and we have to look to others to learn. Especially when there are people in our community whose journeys have taken them places that we have not been, we have an opportunity to embrace a more dynamic and vibrant understanding of who Jesus is and what it means to follow after his example. There is a line in a story about Jesus from the Gospel of John. It seems a little out of place, but could give us some insight into how this happened in the faith of the early disciples and, I think, show us a good path to follow today. We're going to be reading John 2, verses 13 to 22. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. He found in the temple those who were selling cattle, sheep, and doves, as well as those involved in exchanging currency sitting there. He made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple, including the cattle and the sheep. He scattered the coins and overturned the tables of those who exchanged currency. He said to the dove sellers, Get these things out of here. Don't make my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it is written, Passion for your house consumes me. And then the Jewish leaders asked him, By what authority are you doing these things? What miraculous sign will you show us? And Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jewish leaders replied, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But the temple Jesus was talking about was his body. This is such an exciting text. Especially for folks who connect with the liberation themes in Jesus' teaching. We'll look at that in a second because I don't want to miss what happens next in verse 22. 
After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So there Jesus is in the temple, driving out the money changers and confronting some of the Jewish leaders. That's probably the part we're familiar with. But then there's also a line that shifts to talk about the early disciples. After he was raised from the dead, they remembered what he had said and believed. It gives away a bit of the ending, since we're only in John 2, and Jesus' death and resurrection don't happen until closer to the end. But this still gets inserted as a look ahead to what is coming. The author of John, after all, is aware of the total story that they are trying to convey. And the people who hear the story are also not hearing it for the first time. The early Christians didn't have these stories written down until decades after the events happened. So their engagement with the gospel stories took on a very different form than we are used to. Because we are used to having a printed Bible, one aspect that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about is how oral storytelling was a part of those cultures and would have influenced how they remembered their history. Beyond just remembering their history, the oral storytelling culture would have also shaped their identities together, as they would listen to stories and then tell them again. Different details would emerge, or applications of Jesus' teaching depending on what a person was dealing with. Someone who hears the story for the first time encounters something different than a person who is more familiar. Just like we have this experience when we're re-watching shows and seeing new things, or listening to music from a favorite artist. But this process doesn't happen in a vacuum. The Christian communities doing this collective memory project together, they're doing it locally, but they also begin to spread around the Mediterranean, into Africa, toward India, and eventually Central Europe. We can see these connections happening in Scripture, like in Acts 18, 24-28, when Apollos comes from North Africa to Ephesus. The writer of Acts says that he taught accurately the things about Jesus. But Priscilla and Aquila received him into their circle of friends and explained to him God's way more accurately. We get a glimpse that what Apollos was missing was the significance of God's Spirit continuing to be a part of people's lives. He knew the story about Jesus, but he needed to hear, hear about what was still happening. And this was going on in an environment with people who had been physically present to hear Jesus teach and see how he lived. It included some of his closest followers, like Peter, Philip, and James, as well as the female disciples and other unnamed people. The stories get passed around and begin to coalesce into a written form somewhere between 66 and 110 CE. To give a frame of reference, the time between Jesus' life and 66 would have been about 30 years which is the time span between the Persian Gulf War and now. Do veterans remember what happened? When they tell their stories together, can you get a sense of what it was like for them to experience? The 1960s were 60 years ago, and I know stories that my parents have told me about living in that time. More specifically, we might look at the Stonewall Riots in the summer of 1969 and think about how those stories and memories have been passed on to people who continue to find inspiration for solidarity and liberation. The upper limit of 110 CE, which would have been about 75 years after the life of Christ, would parallel with how we remember World War II today. Of course, we didn't live it, 
but we have been shaped by its memory through the people who did. Especially if your community had a close connection to the events of the Shoah, Japanese internment centers, or deployment overseas. The stories were shared by the people who were there, then shaped and preserved by the people who heard them. Of course, there is room for elaboration and exaggeration, but we can see how this process, where it is still used today, holds on to the core meaning of the story, even if details change. It is not like a game of telephone where you don't know what someone else is trying to say. There are relational checks and balances built in because of how many people in those communities would have been able to talk back to set the record straight. The Gospels start to be written down because some of these storytellers are starting to pass away. The writer of Luke starts off saying, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have happened among us. Just as they were handed down to us by those from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. So who are these servants of the word? Since Christian scripture hasn't been written yet, they are the storytellers. They are the ones who have been keeping alive the teachings of Jesus in those early communities. It's pretty common when we're studying the Gospels that we think about what a text means in relation to the argument we think the author is trying to make. The story we read earlier is from the Gospel of John, for example, which we theorize to be written with the intent to demonstrate the divinity and spiritual power of Jesus. This differs from how the other Gospel writers select their stories. And while there's a lot of usefulness to asking what an author thinks, I'm more interested in why it may be that the storytellers preserved what they did. Why could it be that this type of event, Jesus clearing the temple, is remembered by multiple communities to the point where it is included in all four of our canonical Gospels? Why do they keep telling versions of this story? I don't want to get too far away from my main point, but it seems like this is a good example to show how the stories that are remembered are shaped by the context of their spiritual life together. The early church, we know, didn't miraculously transform into its own religion overnight. In the time frame that we are used to thinking about the early church, Christianity is still primarily an offshoot of Judaism. The major debate that we can see reading between the lines of the New Testament is about how similar Christianity will be to Second Temple Judaism, that is, the type of Jewish practice happening at the time. And so part of the religious experience of early Christians, especially those who were also Jewish, would have been going to the temple and synagogue for holy days like Passover and to keep Jewish observances. This shouldn't be strange to us because we know that Jesus didn't abandon Judaism. But the tensions arise in trying to follow the teachings of Jesus that integrate Jewish Christians with non-Jewish or Gentile Christians. And on top of that, forming a community together that is not divided by the social hierarchies such as gender, ethnicity, enslavement, or class. And so, if the Jewish disciples of Jesus were still going to temple on holy days like Passover, you have to imagine the likelihood of how those experiences, walking in the places they had been with Jesus, would remind them of things he had said. And when they would remember the things he had said, 
they would put new meaning on top of those things because of what they were experiencing at the time. So when they remember something he said, like destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days, that takes on new meaning when they recall those words after him being executed and then appearing to them alive. It would take on a new meaning as they are shifting focus away from the temple as a site of worship and finding an identity that emphasizes God's presence within people. It would take on a new meaning as people who do not have a Jewish background are hearing those words and sharing back to their community how they have been changed. But why this story about driving the money changers out? The people who were selling animals for sacrifice and transferring foreign money would have been set up around the outside of the temple, where the court of the Gentiles was supposed to be, so that non-Jewish people who came to worship and pray would have a place to belong. Jesus, showing his righteous anger at these actions in this place, offers a clear sign to outsiders that his message was for them too. That when there is room for all to be a part of life with God, we cannot keep anyone out. And in a context of figuring out how to live Jesus' teaching that crosses social and religious boundaries, this story and others like it would have been vital to remember. And as the church continues to grow, the experiences that people had with this Spirit of Christ became part of their reflection, along with the experiences that people had had with the physical person of Jesus, which ultimately gels into what we see in the Gospel accounts. The author of John brings the belief of the community about their experience with the living Christ and reads that vision of resurrection back into the cleansing of the temple. And what fascinates me when thinking about the early church in this way is how their stories came together to present an image of Jesus as a person and his teaching in such a compelling fashion that it has motivated faith for the next 2,000 years. What was compelling in the very beginning of our movement was hearing people talk about who Jesus was, what he had taught them, and what they were experiencing together. But what does that mean for us today? Just like the early church, we are still telling our stories about Jesus. Where have we encountered Christ? Whose stories are we listening to? I connect with hearing stories that come from different cultural experiences. Jesus is like a guru from Sikh and Hindu traditions, an ancestor or elder brother from various African traditions. And even sometimes, when we're singing corny songs, Jesus is like an American boyfriend. We also see something about Jesus in the ways that marginalized people experience him. In a white supremacist society, James Cone says Jesus is black in all of the ways that blackness is offensive to the white consciousness. William Barber says that Jesus is a brown-skinned, working-class Palestinian Jew in his work with the Poor People's Campaign. To liberation theologians, Jesus is always in solidarity with the oppressed. This is why I love contextual theology. I love exploring the different ways that people experience and understand the gospel on their own terms. Especially when so many places have had their cultures colonized, it is restoration of their dignity to have God talk on their own instead of repeating European or American formulations. 
By trying to decenter myself and my privileged identities, I can get outside my echo chamber and hear hard truths about what it means for me to follow Christ. I can also hear the story in new ways that inspire a different path of discipleship. What I like about studying contextual theology is listening to others talk about how they understand Jesus to be at work in their lives, contexts, communities. And my work now is to move from just appreciating their insight to responding with action. Each of these ways of talking about our experience with Jesus gives us a different glimpse into the significance of his life and teaching. We see that we do not have to go far off or change ourselves to encounter his spirit, but that he shows up to our spaces, incarnates, to transform them by his justice and liberating love. And when we follow after justice and liberating love, we will find Jesus there, perhaps surprisingly. So we can look to the experience of people in other communities, but we also need to listen to the people who we have the most relationship in common with. How has the Spirit of Christ been at work in Mission Hills and Northwest Los Angeles? What stories do its people tell? How have you encountered Christ? How have you been liberated? What do you need to have the freedom to tell your story? And what will it look like for a community to bring their whole selves together to find those common threads? Something that I am learning now is that my faith is not just about self-denial, but discovery and delight as well. It is pushing me further into vulnerability, but also bringing back some foundational stories of how Jesus shows God's extravagant love to all people, which includes me too. When we are able to talk about our experiences with Jesus and our experiences with the Spirit of Christ, we have the ability to be transformed by the same compelling message that existed within the early church and has persisted through the centuries. When we listen to the voices of others, when they tell us how they have experienced the liberation of Christ, when we listen to others tell us how they have been affirmed by Jesus' teaching in their full humanity, when we listen to others tell us about how they are part of God's family, despite ways that oppression has sought to discard them. This is where we have the ability to adapt to our changing world and find the power to develop new narratives that can guide us as we envision a type of world and make steps together to bring that vision to reality. The author of Hebrews closes their letter with the words that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever which I usually hear in the mouths of people who want to hold on to their understanding. But what we find, even in our diverse storytelling about him, is an experience of love, restoration, and justice that meets us where we are, regardless of how we and our world continue to change. So what is your story to tell? Whose stories do you need to hear? And how will we walk together to experience Christ in new ways for us to tell again.